The following sermon is a ministry of Hilton Head Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at hiltonheadpca.com. Well, good morning. It's great to be with y'all. Um, if you're visiting with us here today, I am not Bill McCutcheon. Um, not even close, really. Uh, my name is Jason Suddeth. I am the campus pastor at Hilton Head Christian Academy, which is just around the corner here on the island. I'm an elder here in the church, um, and I have the pleasure of being with you today. Um, I've been in education now for, this is year number 12 for me, and someone jokingly asked me before the sermon, like, oh, summertime, best part of being a teacher is the schedule, right? And they expected me to say something loving and kind, like, no, it's the kids. And I said, oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's amazing. The only negative thing about being off in the summer is if you're a sports person, there's nothing, right? Sorry, I got accosted by a baseball fan before it started. I love baseball. It's just there's too much of it. It takes too long, and it's not fun to watch. Um, but outside of that, it's fine. And right now we have World Cup, you know, and that's okay. And I'm just not, you know, a match between Ukraine and... Australia, I have a hard time getting too excited about that. I don't have a rooting interest. I'm not from Australia despite my thick Australian accent. I'm actually from the South. And I just don't get excited about it. But you know what I love? I love watching people who are excited about a sporting event. You know when you go to someone's house and it's a Clemson game and they graduated from Clemson and they love Clemson or they're an Ohio State fan and they love Ohio State and just how they watch the game is totally different than how you watch the game. And so I started thinking at home the other night about sports watchers, and I came up with a couple of cliches, all right? So here's some ways you know you're with an intense fan. If you're with a no-looker, here's what I mean by that. They don't actually see the game. They watch the game like this, and then when you cheer around them, then they get up really excited, and then they have to see it on replay because they're too scared. I fall into this category. I fall in, if you, can, you can't see from there, I'm a nail biter. Like when North Carolina's in the NCAA tournament, by the end of the tournament, I have no fingers left. It's just nubs. Like I just keep going. And it's probably my wife's least favorite thing about me. She can hear it from anywhere in the house. As soon as I get to like right here and you hear that initial gross sounding click, like, like it does, she can be across the room and she, she has saved a lot of my nails over the years. Some of you are pacers, you know what I'm talking about? You can't, st- you, you watch the game and the, the, you just, you can't stand the one spot. You got to go back and forth. Anyone a pacer? You won't admit it. A bunch of you, <laughs> bunch of you are, you liars. All right. Some people are the hands on heads. I fall into this one a little bit and they, you, they just, they're up here, right here. And when something happens, they transition down to here. <laughs> You know what I mean? That you carry all this tension in your hands. Some of you, and I, I'm a little crit- of a critic here. This is not my favorite. Some of you are first name users. So you see the guy on TV. So Tom Brady, you know, best quarterback of all time. Patriot fans, you know what they call him? Tom. Tommy. Like they might run into him at a barbecue someplace. And oh, there's Tom. You don't know Tom Brady. Clemson fans, I was so glad when Deshaun Watson finally graduated. Not, because he, not just because he tormented all of my teams, because every Clemson fan, oh, Deshaun. Did you see Deshaun? You, his, use his full name. All right, sorry. Uh, I get into, after the service, a couple of people gave me a few more. There's the, um, the person who won't let you move if the team's doing well. 
you know, that you're going to somehow mess up what happens on the screen. So, like, you're on the couch, and you think some more nachos would be nice, and you get up like that, sit, sit right there. There's the think they're the announcer guy. There's the announcers hate us guy. There's the, this is my least favorite, coach on the couch guy who never actually played the sport but thinks they know the sport and can't tell the difference between a screen pass and between a draw play. Like, we all have this, but what you can watch in people is the tension, Right? You can watch the tension in their bodies as it's getting into the fourth quarter. Or right now, like I said, we're in the middle of the World Cup. And I love watching soccer fans because no one ever scores, ever. They go up and down. They go up and down. And, and when someone scores, they lose their mind, partially because no one ever scores. But it builds up in the tension, and they let out this shout for joy. It's no one like screams at a sporting event because they're like, I think I will scream at a sporting event. It flows out of them and they explode. What we're going to look at today, our psalm we're going to look at today is actually a call to explode in joy. Not say, I'm going to tell God he's very good. It's a call to, I want to explode for joy to God. And if you have a Bible, let's just look at the first so I can set that up. Then I'll kind of show you where we're going. So go to verse, or chapter 66 in the book of Psalm. Uh, 66 verse 1. Psalm 66 verse 1. Shout for joy to God all the earth. Sing the glory of his name and give him glorious praise. Say to God, how awesome are your deeds. So great is your power that your enemies come cringing to you. All the earth worships you and sings praises to you. They sing praises to your name. This, these verses tell us to shout for joy to God. Not, all right, consider who God is. Let's take this and then tell God who instinctively joy-filled react to who God is. And it's a call that this should just sort of flow out of us. This feeling of joy towards our creator should just sort of flow out of us, which made me ask a question. Why don't we shout for joy very often? Not literally shout. Why doesn't the joy of the Lord just sort of happen all the time, out of us, very often. And the psalm actually gives us a theory on why, okay? So here's my theory based off this psalm. We don't shout for joy very often. Here's my three reasons. One, because we don't know who he is. Second, we don't shout for joy very often because we don't know whose we are. Not who, whose we are. And finally, We don't shout for joy very often because we don't know how. We don't know how to respond. So what we're going to do is we're going to do what the psalmist says. He's going to tell you and he's going to tell me to come and see. And we're going to come and see who God is. We're going to come and see whose we are. And we're going to come and see how to respond. Okay? So look with me to verse 5. Look with me to verse 5. We're going to read the 66 verse 5. Here's what he says to do. Come and see what God has done. I'm going to read that first part one more time. Come and see what God has done. He is awesome in his deeds towards the children of man. It's just a very simple, easy little challenge. He says, just stop what you're doing, come over here, and see what God has done. And then he follows it. The interesting part of this verse to me is how he follows it. He says, what God has done to the children of man. 
He could have said children of Israel. He could have said people of God. He could have said the elect. He could have said any of these terms. He says, come and see what God has done towards the children of man. Come see how God has made himself obvious to every living person walking on this planet. You know, if you walk up to a stranger today and start talking about Jesus, chances are they're going to be a little weirded out. I would guess. In the South, you have a lower chance of that happening, but they might be a little weirded out. But if you got into a conversation with a stranger and you started talking about being blessed, if you started talking about the good things that the creator that God had done in your life, you'd probably get a pretty normal reaction from them. I mean, think about it. You walk up to someone who's standing out on the beach of Hilton Head, some of you were here on vacation, and you're looking out on that ocean and it just stretches on seemingly forever. It's not a hard thing to say to someone like, isn't this beautiful? Man, who made this? And the average person might go, yeah. Or if you're standing on the, by the Grand Canyon and you're looking at the depth of that to say, man, look at the might and the power and the glory of God. Or if you talk, see someone who's got a brand new little baby, there's a, a newborn here earlier in the first service. If you look at that mom and say, can't you see God's goodness by giving you this kid? They're going to go, Absolutely. See, God has shown himself in creation, in relationship, in everything you can see. Romans 1 says God has made himself plain. That doesn't mean like boring. God has made himself clear through creation so that no man is without excuse. We can see who God is just by looking at this world. I bet some of you at one point this week, you just kind of got stopped in your tracks. And you're like, oh, God has been so good to me. Or, oh, thank God for this. I can't believe God let me have that. You can see God in your daily life. But here's the problem with that. Here's why that alone doesn't make us shout for joy. It doesn't do it. You can see a beautiful sunset, and it can make you, you can still be worried about what's going on in life. Why does that not alone do it? It doesn't show us the full picture of who God is. Look down to verse 6. So we just said good deeds to all men. Verse 6, he turned the sea into dry land. They passed through the river on foot. There did we rejoice in him. The author of this psalm was most likely David. Um, uh, it's not credited to him at the start of it, but a lot of the famous pastors and books from all time have said it was most likely David. So let's just say if it was David, David is talking about when the Israelites passed through the Red Sea on dry land probably all know that story, and when he passed through the Jordan River on dry land. Now, a lot of you in, think like me. Everything that happened in this part of the Bible, the Old Testament, kind of feel like it happened all at the same time. But actually, when they passed through the Red Sea, and when they passed through the Jordan, David wasn't born. He was hundreds of years from being born. Do you know how he heard about that story? Someone wrote it down. And he was taught it. And it was told, this is God's word and God's truth. And he was told, this is what the Lord has said. This is how God has revealed himself. David took it the same way we hear that story. Out of the word of God. So, what we see here is David says, he has turned the sea dry into land. David is sort of saying here, do you want to know who God is? 
You have to know what he's done. Not just what you see on a rainbow, not just what you see on a beach, what we know that he has done. See, here's why this book is so important to us as Christians. This book contains the picture of God's character and God's actions towards us. So this book is the full picture that we see of God. If the only thing you know of God is what you see inside of other men and on a beautiful sunset or in a rainbow or on a beach or on some other beautiful spot on this earth, you're getting a small glimpse of who your creator actually is. You may feel loved when you look at a sunset, but you know what? I bet you'll feel a lot more loved if you read a story about the Son of God who came to earth to find you and lived perfectly and took all of your sin with him and bore the full wrath of God on the cross. That's in a gospel. That's not in a sunset. You may feel God is powerful by looking at the Grand Canyon and thinking, wow, how, how is that formed? But when you turn to the book of Revelation and you read about the throne room of God and see every living creature who's ever lived bowing down before him and saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain. Now you get a fuller picture of his power. Why don't we shout for joy to God? It may be because we don't have a full picture of who he is. We need this book. We need to be in it. We need to study it. We need to hear about it. We need to hear it preached. We need to be reading it on our own. We need this book to know God. Now, some of you, you respond like I do in that moment, and I'm busy. I have kids running around the house. I don't know. I'm busy. When do I have time to give an extra 30 minutes, an hour, a day, to reading some ancient text? But I'll tell you this. There's this magical thing that I have on my phone. It's amazing. It's an alarm. No, I'm serious. And I set it at 7 o'clock every morning, but what I've recently found out, it will go before then. <laughs> you can like, spend, it, the numbers will change. But the reality for me and who I am, my reality is sometimes I would rather have sleep than know who God is. And then at the end of the day, I'm wondering why I'm not shouting for joy. Now, I don't say that to bring a, a world of guilt because I'm, I'm standing there right with you, but to tell you, it is somewhat of a matter of priority. Sometimes it's other voices. It may be busyness. I think one of the biggest things, just as sort of a aside on this, that keeps me historically has kept me from really diving in and trying to find out who God is, sometimes I know what I'm going to find and I may not like the answer. Like sometimes it's going to tell me that the things I'm doing, I shouldn't be doing. I, one of the dangers of sin, one of the huge dangers of sin, is here's what it does. It keeps you from wanting to be with God because, you know, if you're with God, you're not, it's not going to be joy. It's fear that you're worried about feeling. So I, I ask this very simple question. If you're a Christian and Jesus has died for your sins, your sins are, are covered on the cross, but you're actively and purposely living in a sin. You're doing something you know is wrong. You're living in that pattern, and you feel guilt. Is that from the Holy Spirit? Yes. I heard one. Absolutely, yes. That's from the Holy Spirit because he says, get out of that. That holds you at bay from God. Now, you, are, you may still be covered by the blood of Jesus, 
But when we're living in a sin, it is a, in this world in some sense, and there's a, a big theological question here to dive into deeply for another sermon, but sin always separates us from knowing God well or knowing God at all if you're not in Jesus. So, sin separates us. Now, here's the, so it says, please fill this guilt so that you will run away and come to me. That is a great thing. That is a Holy Spirit thing. Here's the second piece, though. If you're a Christian and you have repented of a sin and it is in the past and you've been forgiven of it and you still feel guilt, is that some kind of like Holy Spirit remnant there to remind you not to commit it again? God's like, I'm just here. Hold on to this guilt and then you'll remember, don't commit that sin again. Is that from God? No, where's that from? That's from Satan. Here's what he's doing. He knows sin separates us from God. And when God has delivered you from that sin, his mindset is, how can I still keep them as distant from their creator as possible? Ah, you really will think God wants time with you? You don't want to be with him. You know what you did. Yeah, he forgave you. He probably had, yeah, you're probably forgiven eternally. You really think you can just access the presence of God? I feel like I've said that I've only had the privilege of preaching maybe up three times. I feel like that's come to me before, but I just know so many people who don't want to know God well because they're holding on to something that happened 10 years ago, five years ago, six months ago, and it's forgiven and it's gone, and yet you're holding on to it. Guys, We need to come and see who God is. Because when you find out who he actually is, then we get to see this great next thing. We get to come and see whose we are. We get to come and see whose we are. Look with me down to verse 8. Verse 8 says this. And actually, before I read that, let me say this. Note that I said whose, not who. Right? Everybody caught that? That S-E is very important there. American culture tells you, tells you very clearly, know who you are. Know who you are. Know, if you can just know yourself, then you'll feel better. Then you feel better. You'll feel good. No, no, no. I think that's, they're really close, but they're wrong. It's whose. When we find out whose we are, it changes everything. Look at verse 8. Oh, there you go. Bless our God, O peoples. Let the sound of his praise be heard who has kept our souls among the living and has not let our feet slip. If you call that in there in verse 8, it said, God has kept your souls among the living and has not let your feet slip. So what the author is sort of presenting here is that there's a God who intimately knows and plans for you down to the number of days you have on this earth. It says he has kept our soul among the living. He hasn't let us die because he has made a plan for our lives and how long we'll be here and what that life looks like. And then he says he hasn't let our foot slip, which implies that there is some sort of path or some sort of plan that no matter what happens in this world, you can't get tugged or pulled or dragged off of it. So what he's saying is that God intimately knows and plans for you. So I ask you a question, an honest question here. Do you really think the God of the universe who created time and space uses the energy and the effort to actually have a plan for you? 
32 septillion, 79 sextillion, 979 quintillion, 447 quadrillion, 57 billion, 260 million. That's an estimate of how many biological organisms are on the planet right now. And you are one of them. That's it. You really think the God who made, sustains all of those things cares about you and knows you and thinks about you and has ordained things to happen in your life? You better believe it. Not only does he know you and plan for you, but this book, which we need to know to know him, tells us he values you. He wants relationship with you. He sought you out. He died for you. He has purposes and plans beyond your knowledge and beyond your ability and is capable to do imaginably more than you could ever imagine. If you ever get in your heart, like really get fully down in the bottom of your soul that out of the 32 septillion beings on the planet, God wants you. It'll change everything. That's when you'll start shouting for joy. 32 said, he wants you. He has a plan for you. Your foot can't slip off the path he has for you. Your life continues day after day for what he has for you in Christ. That's if you are in Christ And this is why we have to know, I said, whose you are. If you have put your faith in him, you said, I am yours. And amazingly, he says, you are mine. There's an amazing thing about being in Christ. We may be one of 32 septillion, but he has us right in his hand. I think it's one of the most peaceful things you can run into in life is to know that there's no path you can be pulled off of. And it's important we know this because if you have a Bible, look down at verse 10 because what comes next is a little surprising, okay? We just heard that. You're one of 32 septillion. You can't be pulled off this path. He knows the days of your life. Look at verse 10. Look at the shift in this passage. For you, O God, have tested us. You have tried us as silver. You have brought us into the net. This is not getting as fun as we were before. You have laid a crushing burden on our backs. Okay. And then this one is the one that kind of got me. You let men ride over our heads. We went through the fire and through the water that you have brought us out to a place of abundance. So, whose we are, we are known by God. We are loved by God. His life is planned for us. And then we get, we're so, we're kind of riding this high. And then we run into verse 10 and goes, oh yeah, by the way, Think of some of these words. You're tested by God. You will be tried like silver. My, my wife came downstairs last night, and I was watching a, a YouTube video on the TV of um, someone making or refining silver, silversmithing. And I think she's always known I'm kind of a nerd, but like when you come downstairs and your husband's watching a silversmithing video, you're basically categorized at that point, right? Like, oh, this looks interesting. Um, but so I'm watching this video and she's like, what are you doing? I'm like, I wanted to see what it takes. It takes 900 degrees to melt silver down. 
and you melt it down, and then you pour it out, and you hammer it into shape. And then you, because it stops being very malleable, you have to put it back into the fire, but don't melt it all the way down. So you can pull it out and then hammer it again until it gets into the shape you want. And according to this passage, what God is going to do in our lives, he's going to test us and try us like silver. And he said, what does that look like? Crushing burdens will be allowed to come down on our back. Men will ride over us. That is, if you're wondering if that's some sort of weird illusion, it's, it is in some sense, but it's, it's really just saying it's like our bodies are on the ground and our enemies are taking their chariots and rolling right through us, past us. We have lost, we're crushed, we're destroyed. I think some of us have been taught a very bad theology, a theology that if God is really for us and loves us and has plans for us, he would never let any of those plans be difficult or tough. I got a call about six weeks ago um, on a Saturday that from my sister, and she was very upset, and she said, Dad's going to the hospital. He lost consciousness. Ambulance has picked him up. They're on their way. We'll let you know when we know more. We have no clue what's going on. You know, your world just like stops, right? So about 15 minutes later, I get another call. And you're, just, you're just waiting and waiting. And I get the next call. He's in, they're at the hospital. Apparently it was a rough ambulance ride. He's still with us. They think it's a heart attack. We'll know, we'll call you when we have more. And I said, well, I'm just, I'm coming. I'm, just, I'm coming. And so I got in the car, hopped onto 95, hopped onto 26. My parents are in Columbia. And I get there, and not to try to drag the story out, my father is still with us, and the Lord decided to keep him in this world for a while longer. But as I'm driving up to Columbia, you know, you, what do you do? You're just praying, right? What do you do? You know, you, you just, it's two and a half hours of that awkward silence. So what do you, just pray then. You just pray, and I stopped praying for him to live. And that sounds kind of strange. Because God's ordained my father's days. Would God have been any less loving if he decided my father's life ended six weeks ago? Would he have been any less in control of this universe if he had said, Mike Suddeth is coming home with me now? No. See, the great thing about knowing who God is and knowing who he has, not who I am, whose I am, is that when life comes hard at you, when economy breaks down, when struggles come, when illness comes, when death comes, we don't have to live in a fear that there's some out-of-control factor going into this world. In fact, I'll tell you, it's a bigger picture than that. If God lets tough things happen in my life, hard things happen in my life, and it shapes me into the image of Christ, listen, hear this very clearly. I'm probably going to say it a couple times. It's the most loving thing he can do. I'm going to say it again, maybe a little differently, but kind of the same thing. If God lets hard, difficult, painful things happen in your life, but in that process, he shapes you into the image of Jesus, that is the most loving thing he can do for you. If you're that silver in that fire, facing that hammer, it is not God not loving, it is God shaping. And you say, why in the world could that be a loving thing to let me suffer just to be like Christ? Let's go back to it. 
Whose are we? We're his. And he's making us like him. Who is? Come and see his greatness. What he's doing as he makes you like Christ. He's making you into the image of his son. And what he's saying is, you are my son and my daughter. You are a co-heir with Christ. And whatever you go through, when you become more like Christ, here's what you're going to find at the very bottom of it. And here's where we come all the way back. Here's where we find at the very bottom. Joy. Do you want to shout for joy in life? The only way I know is to become like Christ and to know he is mine and I am his and to know who he is. So if it takes testing, if it takes trial, I can tell you it is better to suffer into the likeness of Christ than to ease into worldly mediocrity. So what do we do? Let's come and see how to respond. Verse 13 I will come into your house with burnt offerings. I will perform my vows to you which my lips uttered and my mouth promised when I was in trouble. I will offer to you burnt offerings of fatted animals and smoke of the sacrifice of rams. I will make an offering of bulls and goats. And then 16 and 17. Come and hear all you who fear God. And I will tell you what he has done for my soul. Come to him with my mouth and high praise is on my tongue. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. But truly, God has listened. He attended the voice of my prayer. He says at the beginning, I will come into your house. What do we do? We pursue God. Come and see how to respond. It's very simple. We pursue him. Earlier I said, hey, read this book. Know who God is. There's not a test in heaven. You don't have to name, you know, how many, you don't have to be able to recite all of Isaiah to get into the kingdom. But I'll tell you what happens when you realize you're a child of God. All of a sudden, the book of Isaiah, I want to know what's in there because I want to know who God is. And I will come into your house. I pursue Jesus. It draws us into pursuit of him. And here's the second thing and the big thing. How do we respond? We worship. It's pretty simple. Verse 18 and, or 16 and 18 and 17 again. Come and hear all you who fear God, and I will tell you what he has done for my soul. I cried to him and my mouth, with my mouth, and high praise was on my tongue. Do you realize that's what you were made to do when we were formed originally? Adam and Eve were made for worship. And when we're in Christ, when you place your faith in Christ, It awakens something in you. And I'll tell you, the longer that I'm in Christ and the more that I know him, it awakens, in a sense, it awakens it more in me. I desire to worship him more, not just by singing a song, but in how I live and talking about him, talking about him with my kids and my family, my neighbors, my friends. It awakens a desire in me to live a life of worship. And I the only thing I can compare it to is when I had kids. Um, I, I was not a kid person. You know how some of you, like when you see a little baby and you've always been that way since you're like, oh, it's a baby, I want to hold it. I saw a baby pre-kids. I was like, oh, it's a baby. Don't let it spit up on me, please. Um, I just like, you know, they're, they're cute and stuff, but take them to your house and let them cry. Uh, that, that was my mindset a little bit. So judge away, I can take it. Um, but then you're in the hospital room. And I got the first glimpse of my little girl, Adeline. 
It's like it awakened something in me. And now, every baby I see, I just, I don't know. I just, you know what I mean? Like, now I'm some gooey weirdo who's like, oh, let me see your baby. They're like, get away. Uh, You're a stranger. Uh, But it awakened something in me when I saw, because I felt this love, this joy that I had never felt before for another human being. It was a different joy than anything I'd ever felt before. And I was like, where did this come from? And it overflowed into every other person I see. That's what happens when we realize whose we are. It awakens a part of ourselves that says, I will worship. And it brings something to the surface on us that says, you know what? I will worship. I will shout for joy in how I work. I will shout for joy in how I raise my kids. I will shout for joy at my job, with my spouse, with my kids, at the doctors, in my pain. I will shout for joy. So if you're in this room and you're a Christian, you know whose you are, shout this week. And if you're in this room and you're just kind of looking at the Christian stuff, you're thinking about it, maybe you've been involved in the past, but you're, you're just not... Let me encourage you to do this. Here's the other thing the passage asked you to do. It said, come and see what God has done. Don't just do a quick church drive by here where you come in, you hear one sermon, and then you say, okay, that was kind of interesting. If you're not sure about this stuff, dig into this book. Go to a friend you know who knows this and ask him hard questions. Truly come and see if this God is really who he says he is and if he really loves you how we say he loves you. And for all of this week, let's shout for joy. Let's pray.